This episode of Biscuits and Jam is presented by Boar's Head. Welcome to the summer tour edition of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living Magazine. My guest today is the Oklahoma native and Nashville legend, Vince Gill. The last time he visited with us was in October of 2020, right before his Christmas shows at the Ryman were canceled, and we are so happy to have him back. Today, Vince talks about getting his first real break from touring in almost five decades, playing to an empty audience at the Grand Ole Opry, and embarking on his first big solo tour in three years. Plus, Vince shares the stories of his stint as a vocalist with Pure Prairie League, the time Don Henley asked him to play with the Eagles, and the Grammy-winning song he wrote for his late brother, Go Rest High on That Mountain. All that and more this week on Biscuits and Jam. Well, Vince Gill, welcome back to Biscuits and Jam. Thank you. Good to be back. I must have done something right. You invited me back. (laughs) Or wrong, and we're going to fix it. I don't know. (laughs) So, Vince, the last time I talked to you was October of 2020. No kidding. And we were really kind of at the peak of the pandemic, or one of the peaks anyway. And a lot of people went through that in different ways, and of course, a lot of people suffered. But when you look back on the couple of years, how did you spend that time? Well, you know, it dawned on me at some point when it all started that all of a sudden my calendar was clear. And that had never happened, you know, in like 47 years. And <laughs> and I looked at it and I went, oh, this is a stretch. You know, this is different. And it's not very kind to say, but I actually was grateful for the break. I mean, I know so many people suffered in the past and, and it was horrible. And, and what it did to our country and, and around the world is obviously tragic. But I tried to find a peace in it for myself is all I could do. You know, I play the guitar. I wish I could have figured out a way to fix it, but I just play the guitar. And so with that, I I went home and it was kind of good because I I hadn't had a real break. And like I said, 47, 48 years. And so it it was kind of peaceful in a way. Amy and I both got COVID, mild cases. All of our kids got it, but little by little, we worked our way back and were careful and got to go back to work again. And that's been when something's taken away from you, you have a tendency when it when you have it all going on of of not being as gracious as maybe you should or grateful, and I was I was just grateful that it was that I could go back out and and play music. I played a lot of shows at the Opry during COVID. They were really bizarre because no one was in the audience. Mm. We we're basically just playing. They filmed it for Circle Television and showed it around the country that way. But there was no audience, and it was still just – it kind of reminded me of the early days of the Opry when it was only a radio show. And so you'd finish your song, and, and you'd hear nothing. <laughs> so strange. <laughs> it was weird, but it was kind of beautiful, you know. And with there not being a crowd there, you didn't necessarily have to play to anybody. You could just get lost in a song that you were performing. And so through all of that, I wrote a lot of songs. I got creative. I Worked hard on a, a new record I made with my longtime friend, Paul Franklin, steel guitar virtuoso here in Nashville. And we made a record some years ago called Bakersfield, where we did half Merle Haggard songs and half Buck Owen songs. And we're working on another one. It's all Ray Price music. So 
we're trying to do our part to to love and respect a, a lot of great traditional country music. That's great. So it was a creative period for you. Very much so. Yeah. Vince, are you still going to uh, Nashville for breakfast every now and then? I just got home. <laughs> 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 Every day. I've eaten the same breakfast for about 40 straight days, but I, I find something I like and I stick with it. And it's kind of fun to sit down and say, you want the usual? Yeah, that'll work. <laughs> Do you and Amy cook very often or did you cook more when the whole pandemic kicked in? Yeah, I guess we did. We ate a lot at home and, you know, I guess there were some places where you could go pick stuff up and things like that. But yeah, we, we made it. We made it all right. What are some of her specialties? Well, my favorite thing she makes are these cheese grits. We only get them once or twice a year for Easter and and Thanksgiving, it seems like. But that's some of the best soul food I've ever eaten, (laughs) what what she does with that. And, and, you know, she cooks, but not over the top, nothing insane, but she's good at it when she wants to. Well, we're going to have to get her cheese grits recipe. (laughs) Man, it's good. (laughs) So, Vince, there were a lot of things that I didn't get to ask you last time, and and one was about your time with the Pure Prairie League. Mm-hmm. And they were famous for a song called Amy. Exactly. And I've just got to ask if that song had any special meaning for you and your Amy. Well, the funny thing is it's spelled different. Right. <laughs> and uh, But, I mean, I knew the song in my bands in school when I was still in high school. That That record came out, I think, in about 1971, if I'm not mistaken, and then nothing happened with that band, and they were dropped from their record contract. And the guy that wrote and sang Amy was a fellow named Craig Fuller, really talented guy. He had left the band after they were let go by the record company. And so then this song catches fire with all the college radio stations around the country in about 1974, 1975. And it's everywhere, you know, and it becomes this monster record for them. And so they go and re sign the band to a record deal, but Craig is no longer in the band. So they never had Craig's voice and songs to follow up the success of Amy with. I think they would have been a much bigger band had that happened. And then a few years down the road, I showed up three or four years later and wrote some songs for him and sang most of the lead vocals for him. And we had a couple of hits and one was called Let Me Love You Tonight in 1980. And that's a big deal for me. I was pretty young at the time, 22, 23 years old. And and on American Bandstand and Solid Gold and the Merv Griffin show and Don Kirshner's rock concert and all these shows I was, you know, would have watched when I was young. And and so it was a great learning experience. You got to really learn how record companies really worked and promoting records and, and all the stuff. It was real professional stuff at a time when I was real young. And I took a lot of it in and paid attention and tried to learn. Well, it was a great band and a a great song. And I remember buying that at a record store, bought the 45 as one of the first records I ever, ever brought home. I still got it. (laughs) Yeah. I got to sing the song while I was in the band for three and a half years. And that was a pretty neat experience to sing something that was so familiar to a crowd, a big crowd in an arena and have them sing it with you. And and that was, that was the first of, of anything like that to happen for me, you know, when I was in the bluegrass bands, nobody really knew whatever song you were playing or you'd written. And so that was fun to to be on a stage and have a few songs that were familiar that really excited a crowd was fun for me. Yeah. You might need to bring it back. (laughs) I should. You know, I just feel like it, I have no claim to it. 
Right, right. It feels disingenuous for me to sing that song because it's Craig's song and and he sang it and he he made the record that was popular of it and obviously I sang it, but I don't think that entitles me, the gratis, to be the one to sing that song out there. Well, Vince, you're about to head out on a big summer tour and really this is the first solo tour that you've had since 2019, I think. Yeah, it'll be three years. And I know you've been out on the road for... A long time, but I'm wondering if this tour feels different in some ways. Well, once again, I feel grateful to go out there and play my songs. I can't even describe how much I've loved getting to tour with the Eagles for the last six years and get to to be on stage and facilitate in some way, some small way, those songs getting to live on. And it hasn't been lost on me, but it's made me miss the songs I wrote and the the career that I— accomplished. And so I'm anxious to go out there and sing songs for the people that invested in me so so kindly over all these years. And just to get to ride around on the bus and crack jokes and hang with my old buddies is going to be a blast. Do you have to kind of get in shape for a tour like this? I mean, are you playing your guitar every day and rehearsing and practicing or, or is this sort of old hat for you? Well, I am 65. If I was smart, I might woodshed a little more than I usually do. But I usually just strap a guitar on and walk out and, and go play and sing. And and it's come pretty easy over the years. And I kind of feel like I'll just go with whatever I've got that night, you know, and there's nothing I can do about it either way. But I've been doing so much work with the Eagles that we've worked plenty and I'm in decent shape and playing wise and singing wise. So it should be just fine. Well, you talked about the Eagles, and we talked about this a little bit last time, but I didn't get to ask you when you got to know Don Henley. When did that happen? My ex-brother-in-law from my first marriage was in a band that opened for them on a lot of their dates on the Long Run Tour. So back in about 1980, I would have briefly met all of them, Uh, but it would have just been, hey, how you doing? And that was it. So no reason for any of them to remember me. And then fast forward a bunch of years, and I, I did a song on the tribute to the Eagles record that they did here out of Nashville, and and I did I Can't Tell You Why that Timothy sang, and Timothy came and sang backgrounds on the version of that song that I did. And so little by little, I got to know everybody, and Don was the last one that I ever really got to know. And he called and asked if I would come work on his record called Cass County, and asked me to come sing and play on a few things, and I had a great experience. You know, I knew what a detailed guy he was and he wanted things just so. And I like that. I like trying to work that hard and that studious. So we, we hit it off, you know, and then um, we did a duet sometime later of a song called Sacrifice, an Elton John song, Elton and Bernie song. They were doing a tribute record to them. And we did a really neat duet of Sacrifice. And then after Glenn's passing, they tracked me down and said, hey, we're kind of thinking about doing this. Would you have any interest? And I said, when do we leave? (laughs) That's not a hard one. I'm in, you know, so I want to just, you know, once again, the word grateful keeps coming up today, but I am because it's a lot of people they could have called to go and continue that. And they, they picked me. So that was a pretty unbelievable validation of, of a lot of hard work for a long, long time. That's a pretty special assignment. Well, Don, Grew up in a small town in Texas. Mm-hmm. Linden, and you grew up, Linden, Texas. Right. And you grew up in Oklahoma. 
And I'm wondering if there's kind of a cultural connection for y'all in terms of the music that you were into or how y'all grew up. Yeah, I would say there is. You know, he knows a lot of the music I knew when I was young. He learned a lot of the same things. And it makes sense, you know, I mean, there's a big rivalry between Oklahoma and Texas that has gone on forever. And we have fun with that. Especially if you're a sports fan. (laughs) Exactly. But I'd like to think we're so much closer than I thought we would ever be. I think what it is, is a really beautiful mutual respect, you know, that we have for each other. And I think he's one of the best lyricists and singers I've ever heard, period. And what they've accomplished bears that out. He treats me with respect and and likes to know what I think, likes to know all those kinds of things. It's been pretty awesome. I'm, once again, just a little overwhelmed sometimes standing on that stage with those guys. And song after song after song after song is so iconic. I asked him, when we first started working together, I said, okay, shoot me straight. What's the first song you and Glenn ever wrote? And he smiled and he said, Desperado. I said, come on, you had to write five or six crappy songs. And he started laughing. He goes, no, that was the very first song we ever wrote. Just like, to me, it was like game over. You know, you just can't, you can't get any better than Desperado. And when we play it live, it's always during the encore. And it always is emotional for me to hear that song because it's so good. I'll be over there, you know, after we finish just applauding and he'll look at me and go, quit it, stop it, quit it. (laughs) I go, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. That's great. That deserves it. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure you have their whole catalog down pat by now, but is there one song that you really love to sing the most? Well, I mean, obviously I get to show off a good bit on Take It to the Limit because it goes so stratospherically high and, and it's a big showstopper song for them and always has been especially when Randy sang it, you know. But for me, Desperado is the one that really, because it was their first song and because that was the song that that led to to all of it, it's pretty astounding, you know, that that's your, that's your starting point is Desperado. <laughs> you go, okay, good luck. Try to follow that up. But damned if they didn't, you know, they just did. And I have so much respect for, for all of them. You know, I mean, obviously so many of the guys are gone and and moved on and they're doing different things, but I met everybody. I knew Bernie, I knew Randy, I knew Don. And so it feels really familiar to be in that band in a way. You know, I tell people, I said, yeah, I was in Pure Prairie League, but I wanted to be in the Eagles. (laughs) So that was (laughs) was a great thrill, you know, just (laughs) once again, that they tracked me down and said, hey, come do this with us. Well, it seems like you've always got about 17 different projects going on. And you recorded a song called Love Changes Everything with Mickey Mm -hmm. Guyton, Mm -hmm. who's also been on this podcast. Tell me a little bit about how you got to know Mickey and how that collaboration happened. It's been several years ago. We were on the same label at Universal, MCA. I'm not sure what they call themselves now. But she was a new artist, and and I heard her sing, and I walked over and introduced myself. so that I've been here a long time, but you and I'll do something together someday. You're really, I think you're really gifted. And it took a while, but the right thing finally showed up, you know, and she sounds beautiful on that song. Love can break your heart, heal your soul. Years when you When you start to fall, back's against the wall. Makes you fly, fly, fly with a broken wing. I love that song. That's the same same guy that wrote The House That Built Me, Tom Douglas. 
Tom is a brilliant songwriter. I've always loved his work and his ideas and his thoughts and a beautiful song. And, and Mickey came and gave it what it needed. Yeah, she sure did. It's a great song. Vince, you're headed out on the road with a woman named Wendy Moten, who I believe is from my hometown of Memphis. She's a Memphis girl, preacher's kid. Yeah, she's unbelievable. She has this killer voice. She was actually runner-up on The Voice. Right. Tell me how y'all met and what it's like being on stage with her. Well, the woman that sang with me for, oh God, 25, 30 years was a woman named Dawn Sears, who sadly passed a few years back. And I knew I had to find somebody, but I didn't want to. I didn't want anybody else up there singing with me. And somebody said, there, there's a woman you should hear named Wendy Moten. And I went and did my research and, and heard her sing and just went, my God. And to me, she's got she's got one of those voices that's as special as Aretha. It's as special as Whitney Houston or Gladys Knight or any of these great soul singers of, of all time. And I tracked her down. I said, hey, I don't know what you're up to, but I could sure use some help and my band and touring. And she goes, I'd love to go. I've always liked what you did. And And as I heard her gift, you know, I said, why aren't you an artist? She said, well, I was kind of being groomed to be the heir apparent to Whitney back in the mid-90s. And for whatever reason, it didn't take or it didn't happen or she didn't like it. or I, I don't know any of the details. But she took a job with Julio Iglesias and went off, traveled the world with him for 15 or 20 years as his duet singer. And uh, the more I heard her sing, I said, the world should hear you sing, Wendy. You're, you're just you're too gifted. And that's my dream for you. And I said, would you consider making a record? Let me help you make a record. And I wanted to do it in the spirit of the Ray Charles record that was made in 1961 or 62. I'm not sure the exact date, but the modern sounds of country and Western music that Ray Charles did, where he did these soulful versions of all these really, really, really great country songs. And they asked Ray, they said, why did you want to do that? And he said, well, I like the stories. I love the stories in those songs. So I presented Wendy a collection of songs. I said, I think we could make a really cool record. And she didn't know most of the songs, which was fun to, for me to be able to turn her on to some really great songs from the past. And and she torched them all. She just torched them all. And it's the coolest record. And sadly, nobody was interested in putting the record out and and signing her and all that. But I think it'll eventually come to light. And even in over the past few years, I featured her in, in, in my shows, just telling people, I said, you have to hear this person sing. She's too good. And we'd be wrong to not let her share this stage. And so I have, and we've done a bunch of those songs over the years. And now since she did what she did on The Voice, you know, there's a little heat around Wendy and a little attention. And so I said, man, Rather than opening the shows for me, why don't we do it like we did and maybe a little bit longer, but feature you in the middle of the show, I think it'll go better and you'll get a little bit more attention that way rather than coming out and sing six or seven songs before we play and all that. So we're excited about, you know, getting to work up some of those songs and watch her shine. I I just love sharing a stage. I don't worry too much about who gets the lion's share of the attention or how much someone sings or doesn't sing or gets to shine. I, I like to see everybody that has a gift be able to share that gift. And stage is kind of pretty democratic in my world. And so <laughs> I like well, that. Well, she is wonderful, and I would encourage anybody to, that can to go out and see y'all 
play. Those are going to be great shows. Yeah. I'll be back with more from Vince Gill after the break. This episode of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living is presented by Boar's Head. Introducing Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Glazed Chicken, a new classic flavor available only from Boar's Head that brings the celebrated traditions, signature flavors, and iconic taste of sweet honey barbecue to your local deli. Inspired by famous barbecue joints and the aficionados who know the reward is worth the wait, comes an authentic experience that can only be from Boar's Head. Made with premium ingredients, this slow-roasted chicken is delightfully sweet with notes of honey and perfectly balanced with savory hints of hickory smoke. Honey drizzled and barbecue sizzled. Ask for freshly sliced Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Chicken during your next visit to the deli counter. Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and today I'm talking with Vince Gill. Vince, you've been supporting the military in various ways for years, and you've done all sorts of concerts, tributes, you name it. Where does your connection to the military come from, and what kind of relationship do you have with that community? You know, I respect what they have the courage to do. I think a lot of it is probably the era that I grew up in. When I was fairly young, Vietnam was going on, and I I witnessed firsthand how they were treated when they came home. It crawled all over me. It was disrespectful. And they were just doing what they were told to do and did it to the best of their abilities, but yet came home and, and were um, not treated as respectfully as I think they all, all, all deserved. And so I just think no matter what it is, whether it's the military or it's kids with cancer or it's this, I, I like chipping in. It's just my heart, and I feel that's a good way to live if you're willing to help somebody out that can maybe use a little help. Nobody's going to get hurt doing that. All that kind of spirit and all that kind of kindness would cure most every problem we have. You know, All the problems we have, we create them ourselves. And if we didn't act the way we did and treat people the way we treat them, they'd all go away. You know, no matter which one it is, and I know that sounds simple and 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 all of that, but it's it's kind of true. You know, take anything that that's going on, and with a little kindness and a little respect, I think you could probably get most things to get fixed. And I don't think the answer is to to ask the politicians to fix everything that we're just as big a part of messing up. Right. Well, you know, you have had your own experiences with loss and injury. And your brother had a a tragic car accident that left him with brain damage back when you were, I think, 11 years old. Something like that. Tell me about your brother before that accident and what he was like. Well, he was, you know, he was awesome after his accident, too. His personality didn't change. He was still the kind-hearted guy that he always was. And he was, he was really good at taking care of me. I don't see old pictures where he's not caring for me, holding me, carrying me, playing guitar with me, shooting pool with me. He was good to me. He was a great big brother, what you dream of. And he was even after the accident, you know. And um, the problem that he had was he didn't get all the way back, you know, mentally probably where he had been, but he got a lot further back than they ever thought he would. So 
with that, he struggled. The, where he would struggle was just simple things he wouldn't think to remember, put oil in his car or, you know, just normal things that you you shouldn't have to think about doing. They're pretty, pretty easy, but he could never stay on task with that kind of stuff. And so he, he, he never could keep a job and he kind of lived a homeless lifestyle to some degree. You know, he would disappear for long periods of time. Mom would know where he was and and he'd be staying at the mission or working on a Salvation Army truck. Or The last story I remember was he called from somewhere in the Northeast, like in Massachusetts or something. And he, I think he was like a janitor or a cook or something at a, a prison up there and finally said, I, I want to come home. So mom sent him a bus ticket home and he came home and stayed home until he passed in 93. You know, what was cool about my my brother was he was dealt a pretty rough hand, but he never complained about it. He never whined about, you know, his lot in life. He treated it with with great dignity and great character. And that's what I got to watch more than anything. And that was a great lesson. I didn't realize it at the time being a young kid, but you know, just never hearing him saying, I got I got screwed. I got a raw deal. It was somebody else's fault. I, you know, that's the way we are these days is everything sad or negative or bad that happens, it's somebody else's fault. And he wouldn't go there. That was a great sign of character in my eyes as a young kid admiring his big brother. And so I don't do a lot of whining. <laughs> there's always somebody has got it better than you and there's always somebody got it worse than you. So... <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's 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 pretty simple. But he, you know, had a bad bad drinking problem, and even did before the accident. And that's what caused the accident. I think go. They said going well over a hundred miles an hour, and had had too too many beers. Sideswiped a semi and a bunch of flips, and hit a cement embankment. They all said he wouldn't live, and if he did, he'd be in a vegetated state probably for the rest of his life. But he made it out. You know, he made it a million times further than anybody ever thought he could. You know, I don't think they knew much about head injuries back then, you know, like they do now. So anytime I hear about somebody that's, you know, had a little little head injury or that kind of stuff, it makes me think of, of my big brother. You wrote a song called Go Rest High on That Mountain, which I believe was inspired by your brother. Is that right? It was, correct. Oh, how we cried Gathered round your grave to grieve Wish I could see angels' faces When they hear your sweet voice And this has become a song that you're really known for. It's won Grammy Awards. It was a CMA Song of the Year. And you've sung it at some very famous funerals. <laughs> All of them. <laughs> George Jones, Charlie Daniels. Yeah. Talk to me about what that song means to you. Well, it's it's so much deeper than a hit record could ever be. You know, because it wasn't a number one record or anything. It got on the charts and performed well and got close to being a top 10 record. But, you know, a five-minute funeral song is not everybody's idea of a fun country radio, you know. <laughs> I don't even think I intended to record it. And I'd written it at, you know, I started the first couple of lines 
after the passing of Keith Whitley, he was a friend of mine in the bluegrass world, and he's being inducted into the Hall of Fame in this next class, and it's really great to see. But there was a line in the first verse, you weren't afraid to face the devil, you were no stranger to the rain. He had a song called I'm No Stranger to the Rain, and that's where that that came from. But then I, I felt awkward about writing it, and I put it away and for several years. And then when my brother passed, I remembered, hey, I had a neat idea for the start of a song. And that's when the chorus came, Go Rest High. And, and then a couple of years ago, I wrote a, a third verse for it. All these years I've done it and sung it and heard it sung and played it funeral after funeral. I, as a songwriter, I felt like it never was complete. You know, once again, a third verse in that song would have made it six minutes long. <laughs> Nobody would have touched it. But... <laughs> So I finally wrote a third verse, and, and it it feels like it finally is complete. And I've been singing that third verse for the last few years, and it feels great to to kind of have the song button up and, and really finally complete the story. You sang a beautiful and emotional version of that song with Patty Loveless at George Jones's funeral. I tried. <laughs> years ago. <laughs> I tried real hard. It's got like 12 million views on uh, oh, YouTube, yeah. I think. Was George Jones someone that you had gotten to know really well? Yeah, he was. I knew him really, really well. Got to tour with him in my early days when I first had a couple of hits. And and he was kind to me and took me under his wing. I sang on some of his records. And we helped make that record he made in the 90s called the Bradley Barnes Sessions. And we were really great friends, and he called me Sweet Pea, <laughs> arguably the greatest country singer of all time. You know, everybody's going to name the same, same three or four people when they say who's the best of all time, and he's always in the conversation. But he was a great friend. But what tore me up at that funeral was the sound of Patty Loveless's voice. Because I hadn't sung with her in a, a good long while, and, and our voices have been pretty unbelievable together. She sang on, on the record of Go Rest High on that mountain with me, along with Ricky Skaggs. And I sang on some of her very first records back in the mid to late 80s. And she sang on When, when I Call Your Name, my first hit record. So we're we're brother and sister in, in so many ways. And so she started singing that chorus, and there was her voice, and it just took me down, took me out, and I just couldn't recover. You know, I tried and tried and tried. I just kept playing the guitar. And I kept playing the guitar for, for the longest time. <laughs> Until I could get my composure enough to try to squawk out the rest of the song. But just a, a beautiful moment. You know, I I remember at time, there's a great disc jockey up here named Eddie Stubbs, who was on WSM for years and was one of the announcers on the Grand Old Opry and real dear friend and a bluegrass buddy and great fiddle player. And he always was the guy they asked to eulogize at a hillbilly singer's funeral. And I'm the guy they always ask to sing Go Rest High on that mountain. So there was a period of time for, I don't know, a couple months, two or three months, where we sang at a half a dozen hillbilly singer funerals, you know. He put his arm around me, and he said to me, he said, Hoss, he said, I believe you and me are going to bury them all. I said, I think we are too. <laughs> and that's, oh, that's about come true. But you know what? What it is about that song is I'm so taken because people want that song during their hardest and most struggling of times. And the fact that they'd pick something that I came up with, it's, like I said earlier, it's so much deeper and so much more impactful than a hit song could ever be. Hmm. Yeah, well, it sure is. 
it's a very special song. It's a powerful song, and and I can see why people would want to go out on that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Vince, you and Amy have been playing a run of Christmas shows at the Ryman for a bunch of years now. But of course, I got interrupted during COVID, and and we talked about that back in October of 2020. What was it like for y'all on that first night back at the Ryman in 2021? It felt good for us and for them and for the crowd. The crowd missed it too. You know, the crowd, I think, kind of sees that as part of tradition of holiday tradition. It's pretty cool when when people want to do something because of the tradition of it, you know, and, and that has long, that's how Amy and I met back in 1993, was doing a, a Christmas special together. I was doing a Christmas special in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I invited Chet Atkins and I invited Michael McDonald. And I said, oh, hey, if we invited this Amy Grant girl, she's got a pretty big gospel following. You know, we could, <laughs> we could really kill it. So, I invited her, and she walked in the rehearsal hall, and I haven't been the same since. <laughs> I didn't know y'all met in Oklahoma. That's great. Well, we'd met briefly a time or two in Nashville, but never never really long enough to have a conversation other than, hey, how you doing at a celebrity basketball game or this or that. They'd have celebrity softball games and basketball games and things like that, and we'd always turn up at and, But we never really did have a visit until we sat down and make up chairs and got acquainted and found out we were pretty compatible. <laughs> I'll say. Well, you grew up in Oklahoma and, and you're playing some dates in Oklahoma on this tour. And you've lived in Nashville for a lot longer than you ever lived in Oklahoma. But I'm wondering if that still feels like home when you go back and visit and perform. It does. There's just something about that red dirt that feels familiar. The climate feels familiar. The Everything that's surrounding you feels familiar, even more so than it does here. I've lived in Nashville for almost 40 years. It's home, but so is Oklahoma, you know, in a deeper way. Because those formative years of learning to play and learning to sing and playing baseball and basketball and anything with a ball, you know, we just learning how to fit, you know, there's so much of that deep-seated stuff is is driven by that red dirt in Oklahoma. So it'll always be home. And you always feel like you're going to get that welcoming home of, of the hometown kid that did okay, you know, <laughs> that ran off and did all right and came back and hadn't forgotten where he came from. <laughs> well, you've kind of already answered this question, Vince, but, you know, usually I end this asking what it means to them to be Southern. And I asked your wife, Amy, that question. But what does it mean to you to be from Oklahoma, and how has that kind of stayed with you through the years? Well, the thing I think about where I'm from is because of where it is, it doesn't feel like it's Southern. It doesn't feel like it's a part of the South. It doesn't feel like it's a part of the West. It doesn't feel like the Northeast or or the North or, or any of it. You know, it's just kind of this center section between Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, all up in there, that's it's all the farmland. It's all the hard dirt, hard working cattle, farming. I think what I I feel the most out of people from that part of the world is common sense. You know, it's simple, it's hard work. There's no perception of sorts of of what what an Okie's like. <laughs> you know, the term was 
being called an Okie was a derogative term, you know, when the Dust Bowl happened and they all migrated out west. You know, they were looked down upon, and here come those damn Okies. They meant it <laughs> ugly, you know, so. <laughs> but there's, there's a lot of pride, you know, in being a Texan or being an Okie or a Jayhawk and, or a, or a Cornhusker. Or, you know, that that part of the world is is prideful, too, like like most most places are, but without a whole lot of bravado, a little more simple-minded to it. Well, Vince, it's been great having you back on Biscuits and Jam. Hey, thanks. My pleasure. I, I didn't realize it had been so long. I remember doing it, but I couldn't have laid claim to win. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you'll come back sometime. Anytime. Just holler. <laughs> All right. All right, man. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Vince Gill. Make sure to visit VinceGill.com for music, tour dates, social media, and more. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And we'd love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, we'd really appreciate it. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuitsandjam. Make sure to come back here next week for my conversation with the Texas troubadour, Robert Earl Keene.